Welcome to the Unveiled Podcast. My name is Peg Peters. I'm the host, and uh, we are doing a series on psychedelics in Canada. We're in partnership with a nonprofit called Theracil, uh, who is doing an, an advocating for access to legal psilocybin for end-of-life patients in Canada. And they're actually doing a charter challenge this summer. And as part of that series of educating the public, we wanted to have expert and historian Dr. Erica Dick. She's a professor and Canadian research chair in the history of health and social justice at the University of Saskatchewan. She's also the author of uh, Psychedelic Psychiatry um, and co-author of Managing Madness and co-editor of Psychedelic Profits. And recently, this is the one that really connected with me, which is a recent book called uh, Acid Room, but I'm going to get into that book in a second. I want to welcome to our show, Dr. Erica Dick. Thanks a lot for coming on the show, Erica. This is going to be a lot of fun today. Thanks so much for having me, Peg. <laughs> yeah. So let's, uh, first of all, let's kind of, before we dive into your book, which is, uh, I, I'm I'm really excited about it, because I think for audiences, uh, it's a kind of an unknown story um, that most people don't really even know that we have a history of, of uh, psychiatric uh, treatment in Canada, let alone a huge history in Saskatchewan. So I want to really do the full story for those uh, that are following uh, this story of psychedelics in Canada. Uh, Canada has a really unique position uh, in psychedelics. And so I really want to give it uh, lots of context before we dive into your most recent book, which is uh, really cool about uh, a hospital out in New West. But yeah, so first, let's just talk to Erica. How did you first get into psychedelic research? Because some of your early work, like 2008, you're writing, you're writing about psychedelics when it's not even cool to do that. So how did you first <laughs> get interested in psychedelic research? research as a historian? Yeah, thanks for the question. It's uh, it's kind of a story that uh, a lot of people have asked me this question, and I think they expect a different answer, you know, that I, you know, did a lot of psychedelics or that I was drawn to this through my own experiences. And the truth is, it's much more nerdy than that. Um, I was, I was a master's student doing doing research on human experimentation. And I became really interested in, you know, looking at how different experiments were conducted in the 20th century and found this pocket of materials guided by one of my professors, a historian of science. And, uh, you know, I, I went away to Toronto to go and scour the, mm. the medical school library thinking, you know, good things would happen in a big city. And what I found was that, you know, there was this whole pocket of research that had unfolded here in, in a more of a rural area, really, in Weyburn, a small town in Saskatchewan with this giant hospital. And, you know, it, it intersected really in a, in a really fascinating way with healthcare reforms that were taking place in Canada at the same time. And of course, stemming from those healthcare reforms that were anchored in Saskatchewan. And so the combination of the politics of healthcare reform and the politics of medical experimentation in the sort of the dawning of a psychopharmacological revolution really captivated my attention and then mm -hmm. led me through, you know, how did LSD and, mm -hmm. and mescaline and a little bit later psilocybin fit into these other larger stories. Mm, yeah, well, what a cool. I mean, I, I, my background is, is I've done history too, and uh, as far as my my graduate work, and there's something really important I think about the story that we are crafting is that um, psychedelics doesn't just kind of land in our universe because of Johns Hopkins, you know, in 2019 publishing a study that kind of shocked the world, right? That that whoa, 85% of people that do a psilocybin journey have a mystical experience and they can be cured from all a whole. whole 
whole number of things, right? I mean, this is really the narrative that's coming uh, into the consciousness now. But I think as a historian, this is really important that we begin to situate this conversation as part of a larger unfolding narrative in Canada. Um, and I and I really like the way you do that because in the 50s, I in, at least from my reading from your work, it really starts with Tommy Douglas. And I and and for me, that's a really important piece because um, what we have here is we have the father of, of medical, our medical system in Canada. We, we have this value that he brings as a, you know, he's a CCF. So he's a, he's a communist. That's how it basically starts, right? <laughs> he brings these ideas of, we all need access to healthcare and equally, it can't be one person that gets this level of healthcare and a poor person gets this level. That is the basis of this conversation. And I think that's really important. Can you kind of flesh that out? Because that's how we got into mental health and the Weyburn hospital and those conversations, which is how do we, and this is a financial question. That's where I got from you is that Peg, you want to understand psychedelics in Canada and how it rose in the fifties. It was, how do we market and how do we create a, a sustainable models that can help heal people because mental illness is millions of dollars that we, we are going to be costing our system. Can you paint that picture so we can get into the Weyburn hospital? Because this was driven by a mindset, a vision of equality for our country. Yeah, I think that, you know, you're absolutely right. And there is this kind of passion behind this, you know, drive towards equality and healthcare being a big piece of that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we can we can talk about why that's anchored in Saskatchewan and, you know, how the depression affected families in Saskatchewan and Douglas witnessed this himself. He was also an intern for a while at the Weyburn Hospital. This is the Saskatchewan uh, provincial mental hospital, one of two, the largest one, some claim it was the largest one in the Commonwealth. I don't think that's actually true. But nonetheless, this is a large and yet very overcrowded space, where we know now that about 70% of the people who came into that hospital ended up living the rest of their lives there. So when you say millions of dollars, we're talking about millions of dollars, even, you know, back in the day, and then we add inflation, and then we're talking about billions of dollars in today's money. So I think that 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 notion of equality is a piece of it. And I think there's, I would add to that, another angle of a kind of notion of humanity. So the, the notion that people would go into a hospital and have to stay there the rest of their lives mm -hmm. um, is, is a really kind of a demoralizing, a really bleak picture. And Douglas was very tied to that place. It was a place that he had done his own research. It was a place that he lived. He was the, um, uh, the M MLA, sorry, a member of legislative assembly for that region, even before he became premier. He was intimately familiar with the hospital and the challenges that it faced. And I think one of the ways that psychedelics or a couple of the ways that psychedelics appealed to him, it wasn't his idea to bring in psychedelics, but it was his idea to bring in and recruit people who were sort of thinking outside of the box. Mm. They weren't going to maintain the status quo that were willing to take risks. And to that end, he brought in people from the US, you know, healthcare policy experts, one who had been kind of blacklisted for supporting Soviet reforms. You say he's a communist. I mean, he wasn't, but <laughs> yes, that's how. Well, he is. I mean, that, it, at least the people at the time would, you know, reflect that. Exactly. Back and say, I mean, he he was a he was more of a socialist in the sense that of you know course. he was wanting uh, an equal access to people and uh, for for these kind of treatments. Yeah. Yeah, but he definitely collaborated with people who were known communists, um, and that gets him into trouble. But mm -hmm. it nonetheless, you know, helps to paint out a picture. He also worked with Rockefellers. He worked with scientists and, you know, lawyers and a whole variety of people who come to Saskatchewan as a bit of an ideological magnet. 
in this period of reform. So post-1944, throughout the beginnings of the 1950s, there are clusters of people who come. Not everyone stays. In fact, most people don't stay. Um, but they invest in this kind of intellectual energy in thinking about wide-ranging reforms. And to some degree, um, Douglas kind of writes them a blank check, not mm. so much with funding, but with with authority, with the latitude to invest in a bunch of different ideas. Humphrey Osmond is recruited by Douglas in 1951. He's a psychiatrist. He'd been working in England for a long time. It's where he grew up and where he trained. And he was frustrated with what he felt was a kind of um, a hardened establishment that wasn't open to a variety of ideas that Osmond thought were really critical, studying hallucinations not only those that occur organically in people with psychotic disorders, but also those that could be produced by things like mescaline, which mm -hmm. was known in the scientific literature already. He didn't get any reception uh, where he was working in the UK and Douglas brought him in. And this is where he kind of pushes into this research area. He's already published a couple of papers on it by the time he arrives in, Sask in Saskatchewan rather. And uh, this really has an opportunity to flourish. And it connects with that notion of the ideological magnet I'll, I'll sorry i'm rambling a bit here but no no man this is i, I want to pause for a second because this is really i love the painting that you're you're giving us because i think most people don't understand this is 1951 right we are talking <laughs> yeah. way before like harvard and ram das and you know yeah. all of the explosion of psychedelics in in the 1960s we're talking 10 years before that canada is exploring this idea and and again i want to i want to i because what i love is when people realize that the questions that are being asked in 51 are still the exact same questions we're asking right now one how do we get innovative about mental health and, and mental diseases in canada because our current models aren't working that's 1951 people are saying that schizophrenia yeah. there's no answer to it what we're doing is what you're telling me at Weyburn hospital for people to understand this is this is the day and era where you are taking your you know diseased father mother uncle brother and you are saying i don't know what's going on with them let's mm -hmm. ship them to an institution where we can lock them up and we don't know what we don't want to see them anymore and you know, there's people like Osmond are saying this is not humane. We cannot just lock someone in a straitjacket for 50 years of their life and say that that's OK as a as a human population. We need we need, a, a, you know, ways to help them unlock their brain, unlock their disease, get down to the trauma, the root of it, and to be able to help people find freedom. That's the question they're asking in 51. And then they're Absolutely. also saying, and we've got to do it in a way that is not just for the rich that get to fly off to Costa Rica to have a trip for 20 grand. It's got to be part of our medical system that's paid for by MSP. Holy smokes, Erica, this is the exact same conversation <laughs> as 51. And and moreover, I think the, the promise of psychedelics, which of course, Osmond later coins that word, um, the promise of psychedelics is one that not only, you know, allows people, to, as you say, sort of unlock what's going on inside, gain this insight, um, but they get to do it on their own terms. Mm. Um, there's a kind of self-directed component Agency. Oh. that is really important. And I think, you know, there's all sorts of studies, you know, we need to get people, you know, either lock people up in this carceral space, jails and institutions. Um, but, you know, having people actually perform uh, tasks as taxpayers, if you will, like to have people sort of integrated in society in a way that feels meaningful and dignified requires a, a whole lot of skill sets that we don't have. And, 
you know, the current regime in psychiatry didn't offer a, a lot that could get people kind of back mm. to mainstream living, if you will. But they felt that with psychedelics, this was something that could actually empower someone to not just, you know, turn down the volume on that illness, but that mm. could think about their illness as part of their whole being. Wow. That people could see themselves as whole and have, you know, something that gets coined as a disorder. This is a really empowering framework to work with. And I think it is partly why there was such a dynamic relationship between the therapists and the patients. Osmond and his colleagues introduced this um, this organization called Schizophrenics Anonymous. Mm. And it builds on the same principles as Alcoholics Anonymous. But one of the things, and Osmond actually talks about this later in life, saying this was one of the things he was most proud of, um, that it creates a peer group for people mm. going through this. And again, it's not to like, you know, some people fit in, in this box and so they're considered abnormal or even um, deviant and all of these kinds of lesser than terms. But this is a way to sort of reimagine illness, madness, deficiency, all of those kinds of words that are in flow are in flux at the time as part of a, a wider spectrum of human behavior. Mm. Um, and one that can be managed and tolerated, but also managed and tolerated from within, not just externally exposed rules and order and control. Um, now to say that in the, you know, the Cold War, a high time of mind control, of, you know, all sorts of control, concern about communists, you know, engaging in particular kinds of control is a very sort of risky endeavor to start mm. borrowing on the language of things that sound like, you know, horrible uh, totalitarianism. Um, but I think that they they really did believe that there was a capacity for psychedelics to both empower individuals, make it accessible one-time treatments were what they were su suggesting, not, you know, lifetime of right. everyday. Yeah, take an SSRI the rest of your life and it'll just mute your symptoms for 50 years and hopefully that's okay. And even the first antipsychotic medications and the antidepressant medications were were introduced a little after, after this period. So psychedelics are being studied alongside psychoanalysis, lobotomy, shock therapies, a variety of other things. Chlorpromazine, the sort of first blockbuster drug in the psychopharmacological so-called revolution, is introduced in 1952 in France. It comes to Canada in, um, within a few months um, from the Quebec connection, actually, and it is introduced in the American setting in 1954. So it's psychedelics are even coming in, or LSD and mescaline, I should say, are coming in even a little bit before that and sort of fit into that paradigm, but also really challenge it by not taking daily dose, not thinking about the economy of a daily dose situation but a single dose one that may not be as attractive to a pharmaceutical firm mm. but it's very attractive to a government interested in supporting publicly funded health care mm. um, looking at sort of massive changes in an individual from one session now it yeah, might be yeah. a two-day session that requires mm -hmm. extra staffing costs but it's still cheaper than daily dose pharmaceuticals. And I think that's a like, and I, I appreciate you going back to this because um, we, I think so much of our conversation around psychedelics comes out of the United States. And in that model, it's, it's about, you know, uh, they have, they have different tiered systems for how, how healthcare is going to be delivered. But in Canada, we have all kind of our starting premise is that we have a national healthcare system. And so that for, therefore our onus is on delivering, um, delivering treatments to everyone 
in the most cost-effective way possible because it's the taxpayers that are paying that, right? So we don't get the privilege of just saying, well, if you're, you know, if you're mentally diseased, that's on you. Tough luck for you, you know? It's like, no, no, that, that burden of, you know what? I just read this stat, you know, 40%, was it 40? Yeah, 42% of Canadians will be diagnosed with a mental health disorder or, or, or a mental health disease by the time they're 40. That's almost half of our of our of our people. So we're talking about anxiety, depression, postpartum, and, and a whole host of anxiety diseases that are kind of based in that, right? So we're talking about one of the most uh, pervasive challenges the Canadian population faces is mental health challenges. And we're looking at an innovative approach to be able to deal with that in a one-time treatment model, right? And it's not mm -hmm. just you go in one day and take a pill. There's a whole process around it, which was which is what they were discovering. And I think that's what part of the beauty of your book, uh, Ask Room, and we'll get to it because I'm so excited. But it's all about this process of, um, of bringing people together in shared circles of connection and giving them choice, giving them agency in this process. And I just love how you're knitting those conversations together uh, in Canada, which are very unique, uh, Erica. So uh, so you, you just kind of dropped it, but I want to go back to it because this is important. You said Osmond uh, invented the word psychedelic. It was in a, uh, I think it was in a letter with, uh, uh, with uh, Aldous Huxley, and he coined the word uh, psychedelic. And as a Canadian a person working in Canada, to have mm -hmm. uh, you know the Canadian uh, doctor come up with this idea of mind manifesting, right? Psychedelic. It opens your mind up. Can you yeah. tell us a little bit about that story? For sure. Yeah, um, Aldous Huxley, who probably your listeners are familiar with, you know, he's already a kind of literary giant by the time that psychedelics come on the scene or by the time hallucinogens, I should say, come on the scene. And he invited Osmond to come in and see him in his home in Beverly Hills in uh, 1953. And Humphrey Osmond drove there with mescaline and gave Aldous Huxley his first mescaline experience. And this kind of forged them uh, into this fast friendship that was really uh, their families became quite close. They wrote letters back and forth. They visited visited each other as often as they could. Um, and it's through these letters and correspondence that they start playing around with, you know, we need a word. And mm. one of the things that Huxley describes in his book, Doors of Perception, which he wrote in less than a month after his first masculine experience, was even this guy, this like richly trained, you know, elite of elite sort of literary people found it very difficult to find the language to capture and to describe the way that he experienced this, not just because of the synesthesia that that comes, you know, like sort mm -hmm. of mixing up your senses, um, but that it, there weren't words that could touch the experience. Mm -hmm. And they, anyway, so they're looking for vocabulary and they start kind of playing around with different terms. And Aldous Huxley says to um, Humphrey Osmond in 1956, he says uh, to make this mundane world sublime, take half a gram of phanerothyme. And he suggests this, it's got Latin roots and mm -hmm. he wants to play with this Phaneros idea. Um, and Osmond writes back, he kind of writes it in the bottom of the letter. So not necessarily intended for Huxley to see yet. He says to plumb the depths or go, or go angelic, you'll need a pinch of psychedelic. Mm. And he, he plays with this rhyming couplet a few different ways. And you can see it, uh, Google has a variety of different uh, versions of it. And he plays with it in their letters. But he introduces this and he said, you know, I think psychedelic is a little more playful than phanerothyme. It's a little. Yeah. Thank you that we didn't get stuck with phanerothyme. That's be a <laughs> yeah. crazy. The word psychedelic is already most uh, difficult to spell. Right. 
He liked delos from the Greek root to bring to light. And he likes the kind of mind manifesting qualities that, you know, bringing to light something in your psyche had. They also, as they sort of talk about this in their many pages of letters back Mm -hmm. and forth, they talk about not wanting a word that necessarily tipped the scales or pointed towards a particular outcome or application. So it wasn't all psychoanalysis or psychology, it's psi is in there, of course, Um, but it wasn't too overly laden with psychopharmacological kind of language and that it had a kind of uh, buoyancy or openness that they thought would allow for a variety of different thinkers to engage with this term. And I'm, I'm sort of marvel at the fact that we're still using that term uh, still sometimes debating it. And, you know, there have been challenges to whether or not we should use psychedelic hallucinogen yeah. or anthogen or anthogen. Anth- yeah, anthogen, yeah. But it, it stands the test of time. And I think part of it was their their desire to have a word that just welcomed this mm. kind of intellectual conversation mm. and welcomed these experiential ways of thinking through the effects of psychedelics. Mm. Um, yeah, well, and you, uh, I mean, your book, I recommend uh, if, if people are interested in that exchange, the letters of Aldous Huxley and Humphrey, and Humphrey Osmond, uh, they're called, it's called Psychedelic Prophets. You're one of the editors. Um, so <clears throat> that's a great book if you want to kind of understand their correspondence in some of these early days of these psychedelic thinkers that were coming together at that time in the in the 50s. And we now see, uh, you know, a rise. So you, you, you've kind of told this story so far of this really interesting hotbed in, in you know, in Weyburn, Saskatchewan, of these thinkers that are trying to can think about new ways of handling things like alcoholism, uh, you know, obviously anxiety disorders, uh, and, uh, and, and things like, uh, you know, schizophrenia and other things like that. And they're, they're beginning to use, uh, I think LSD is the primary, um, drug that they're beginning to use in the hospital. Is that right? And then, uh, tell me kind of what happened to a uh, Weyburn hospital. How did it, uh, you know, ha- start with such exciting possibilities and then seem to, we don't hear much more about it. So, what happened to that story? Yeah, I think there are a few different competing uh, features that bring about the sort of movement away from psychedelics in Weyburn specifically. Uh, one is that Humphrey Osmond takes a job at Princeton. Uh, he moves for a long time. His his wife and children had gone back to England for a time. And so he's you know living in this long distance space and they were looking for a place where they could live together. The winter's get to people here. Uh, <laughs> shocker. Um, so in 1961, he left and uh, it, for a time was in England and then was at Princeton. And Tommy Douglas also left. He ran for the leadership of the federal NDP, at, which had changed his name at that point, um, New Democratic Party, and tried to and successfully pushed Medicare onto the national stage. And so you've got these two sort of anchoring characters who leave. And there were others certainly trying to continue to hold the flag. Um, but but I think that there are a variety of things that are going on in Saskatchewan specifically. There's a doctor's strike that comes up a few years later. Um, and the I guess the energy or support for these kinds of out of the box ways of thinking, especially those that are tied to healthcare, which become very, very politicized in this moment as Canadians are sort of in a, in a way having a referendum on on uh, whether or not to invest in publicly funded healthcare or not. And it wasn't, a, this wasn't an obvious outcome. You know, there was a lot of tension there. So I think some of that work sort of gets pulled aside. There's also a growing concern that psychedelics are not the way to go. 
And it's not even so much from, I would say, you know, jump ahead another seven years. And, uh, and we have, you know, the Timothy Learyism effect and the idea of self-appointed gurus or people getting freaky in San Francisco and, you know, people listening to music and taking a whole bunch of things, the, the development of underground acid, that's part of the story too. But I think it actually comes a little bit later and early in the 1960s, there's still a fairly, um, robust set of scientific debates around whether or not psychedelics fit. What I think changes between 1951 and 1961 for our purposes here is the massive introduction and the potential for psychopharmaceutical um, solutions that overwhelm this, you know, single dose or, you know, minimal dose. I don't mean minimal in terms of like the amount of acid people were taking, but like taking it once or taking it twice in a psychotherapeutic setting. The, the sort of healthcare system, the healthcare economics of that move it into one frame. But if you can get people to take SSRIs, and that's come a little bit later, but chlorpromazine, or if you can get people to take things on their own dime outside of the hospital, because there's no pharmacare program, even though that was part of the plans, but it never got implemented, that changes the healthcare economics as well. And I think as these stories, as the healthcare arena is politicized in Canada at this time, the, you know, the ambitious idea that we would have pharmacare programs, people start to get a little bit tired, I think, and that experiment is getting a bit exhausted, if you will. And so as an interim measure, like, let's put pharmacare over to the side for now. And in the meantime, psychopharmaceuticals are coming in and you can have doctor prescribed, you can have a family doctor prescribe them, you can have psychiatrists prescribe them, it changes that landscape, people can live outside of hospitals, and pay for their own medication, which they take every day. And later on, we start to criticize this model. But at the time, I think it was seen as this sort of more pragmatic solution. Like it was a shift in the responsibility of who's paying for what. The, now the Canadian system doesn't have to pay for your medication. You are paying for it. And that idea of a daily dose of something that, you know, we don't pay for, it's like, it's not our problem now because it's the system isn't being burdened by that. And moreover, I mean, psychopharmaceuticals were showing huge promise. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you... If you were trying to make a decision, whether it's for yourself or for a loved one, you know, do you want to line up for a lobotomy or would you like to take these pills every day? You know, that even that sort of stark image, um, I think, helped to usher in these medications, which also were showing good results. This dovetails with the introduction of randomized controlled trials. And now that's one other piece that I'll just say for a moment. The idea of the randomized controlled trial is to remove sort of information from the observer and the observed. So no one knows who's taking the active mm -hmm. drug. And we really isolate reactions so that you can really see like, does what kind of reactions does, the, does this have? How do we compare it with those on a placebo or those on something, an, an alternative medication? And then you kind of, you know, you randomize that. So we're really bringing statistics to bear on how we evaluate risk and efficacy in the pharmaceutical complex. Now with psychedelics, it just doesn't work that way. Oh my and goodness. I'm so glad you're bringing this up, Erica. This is a key issue right now in yes. our culture because with the medicalization of psychedelics, mm -hmm. because you think like I'm part of right now, a group that's do that just got health Canada approval for a double blind clinical trial using uh, uh, psilocybin for uh, depression. So it, there, it, my, my brother is a physician and he just applied and got, has a team. They just got exemption from health Canada. Very amazing. They have yeah. to be on SSRIs. 
They, and they have to be clinically depressed for, for a minimum of nine years, which is insane level of, you know, sadness. But, but what, what, what's happening is how do you do a double blind, right? Because I just read a, a clinical trial of using psilocybin and it's like, everyone's blinded, including the researchers and the participants until the moment you take the substance. <laughs> yeah. And now everyone knows whether you took yeah. the placebo or whether you didn't. And now it skews everything because it's the context of how you even do the, the substance. We know about set and setting now. You cannot just remove scientifically all the other elements around what psychedelics do. It's not like a pill, like a Tylenol. It actually yeah. works like a, a it, it works in the energy of the people in the room. It works differently if there's six of you tripping than if just one and you with a therapist. So how do you bracket all of that out? In fact, so when psychedelics were being studied in the 1950s, and of course they, they do have a, a longer legacy as well, but um, this, this contest, this sort of methodological debate is happening on the ground. Um, in fact, Al Abe Hoffer, one of the one of the guys in Saskatoon, he writes a paper called "Double Dummy Experiments." Um, you know, and and he makes exactly the point that you do that. You know, first of all, you immediately know who's on this, and second of all, to borrow Anne Shulgin's term, you know that these are empathogens. These these actually create empathy and create vulnerabilities in a psychotherapeutic setting that that should cause us to ask ethical questions about whether it's even ethical to remove those other stimuli or to pretend that, you know, these things aren't happening, um, that it can actually cause harm. Um, it can bring up trauma. It can, it, there's all sorts of things that can happen in that setting that we know from lots of, um, you can read the trip reports on Arrowhead. You can, you know, there's lots of different ways that we have access to this information. And so in some respects today, to ignore that information and claim that, you know, well, these weren't done in clinical trials, therefore it's not valid information, I think raises deeper kind of ethical or moral questions about how we're testing these, these uh, substances. It also means that we have to ignore all of this history in order to keep pushing through this RCT model. I'm not saying that RCTs are terrible for everything, um, but I don't know that the shoe fits in this situation. I think and you're right, Erica. Yep. Problem. Yeah. Yeah. And I, <laughs> I, I think gonna, this needs, this needs to be talked right. about, you know, what you're saying right now needs to be talked about at the highest levels of clinical research and psychedelics right now, because I think we are, are still being handed, you know, health Canada said we won't approve a study unless it's double blinded clinical trial. And we're like, by doing that, you are harming people. This is like, can you imagine being the person that's been, you know, been told, hey, you're going to be part of a trial and you're going to get, you might get the placebo. And as where this other group is going to have a phenomenal transcendent experience and will have this heart opening experience of being de-armored away from their pain, being able to move close. And you are not going to get that. You're going to get nothing. Right. And it's, it just feels like Oh, I don't know. It just feels like that's almost more harm to those people that, are, you know, I, I, there's, there's so many questions that are being brought up right now, Eric. And I really appreciate this, this questioning of the, the clinic kind of double blind model as maybe not the one we need to be using with this substance. Well, I mean, I think it, it's also, um, we think about 
2022 here, uh, you know, access to information is very different now than it was in 1955. Choose random 1950s number. Um, but, you know, yes, uh, Humphrey Osmond could write to Aldous Huxley and then wait patiently or impatiently for his response. And what did you feel about this? And did you did you actually look at the rose when, you know, you had that thing happen? What did you think about it? Now, that kind of stuff is at our fingertips. And moreover, Health Canada or the FDA and, you know, choose whichever jurisdiction you like does not approve Reddit. It does not approve all of the sub conversations that have been taking place for decades in, we might say, in a kind of underground space or in a non-sanctioned space. So there's a lot of what people call sort of citizen science going on, where we have experiential knowledge and we can bring that to bear in these situations. And it's challenging. It, it kind of, I mean, as a historian, it's weird to think about the future, but if I were to fast forward 50 years, I suspect that there, there we may look back at this and say, like, there's a there's a discord here, or we're out of sync with the experiential knowledge, the experiential um, information that has been accumulated is out of sync with the way that we are trying to assess risk. And I would suggest that we are trying to assess a value, like who should pay for this? Should this be private? Should this go through an insurance industry? You know, all of those sorts of things with their, which are hovering in the background of Health Canada's concerns and the FDA, every jurisdiction, as it should, but I feel that the tools for measuring efficacy are out of sync with the experience of appreciating psychedelics. Wow. That, that's a, can you say that line again? Because I think <laughs> I that, that is like, yeah, the, can you just re re reframe that for me? Cause that, that really hit me. Yeah. I, I think the methods by which we evaluate risk mm. are no longer appropriate for the ways that we come to know psychedelics. Mm. Wow. Okay. I like this because sense. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really good because I think, and, and there's another layer too. There's an urgency that we, we have to admit that's happening in our world right now um, when it comes to mental health concerns and uh, things that we can offer, right? What are physicians are frustrated you know, and again, it's not like the, you know, physicians and the, the healthcare model is it doesn't want to help people. Physicians, yeah. nurses, psychiatrists, uh, you know, therapists go into this field because they really want to alleviate suffering. I really believe that. I have so many people I know that that's their heart, but they just don't have the tools. And, and they're like, oh, finally, I've got a tool that can actually help. I can actually open up and, and drop the defenses of people, you know, and we can begin to understand the neurobiology and we can talk about the default mode network going offline and the amygdala, which is our fear circuit begins to drop. We can move closer to these areas in our life that have been kind of held on and we've had these traumas or that's all possible. But it's like, we are, we, we, we believe though, we, we, we have to understand that if we want to be able to explore that in Canada, we have to be able to think of new models, new ways of testing and understanding how is this, uh, how is this working? Is this uh, it, not just efficient? It does it work, but what is the best way for this treatment to take place? Maybe it's not in a doctor's office or even with a therapist. Like I'm actually at the place, Erica, right now where mm -hmm. I'm actually saying, I don't think the therapeutic model is the best model for psychedelics. I don't think that psychedelics should be in the hands of a therapist. I think it needs to be hands of communities, organizations and community groups and spiritual groups and churches and these kinds of things 
because people need to land back into a safe, loving container, not just, oh, I'm done with my therapist at $170 an hour. And now I'm dysregulated again months later because I don't have a person that, you know, can see me anymore. Right. So I, I, I you're asking massive questions and I'm, <laughs> I'm interested. Well, I think you kind of hint at another piece of this story that I think is really, really important, which is, you know, are these in fact medicines, you know, should they be captured or even regulated through sort of healthcare methodologies and, and uh, you know, all that jurisdiction. But we know if we crack open the, the lens a little bit more and sort of widen the scope of this story for millennia, these have been used as teachers, as sacred plants, they're used in healing ceremonies, but they are highly spiritual. They are connected to indigenous rituals that enrich culture. Um, and yes, they bring about insight and they have other kinds of things that we could parse out and say have a healing component to them, but they're part of a different kind of framework or part of a different encounter. I think one of the things we could say sort of stereotypically, like not to go off in this on this direction too much, but despite, um, whatever, there's lots of critiques of this, but there's a kind of secularization that's taking place throughout the um, 20th century as well. And healthcare and spirituality are not working together. It's fascinating to me that Canada, I'll do some more CanCon for you, you know, that coins the word uh, palliative. <laughs> um, you know, Canada was not the first place that had people who died, um, nor do they have the, you know, the first place where people cared about dying care, but, you know, coining the word palliative and giving it a kind of institutional space and research dollars to interrogate that space brought back a conversation about spirituality in the clinic and thinking about religion and drawing in different, you know, chaplains and different ways of thinking about end of life conversations that brought spirituality into that space. I think it's fascinating to see that most of the section 56 exemptions, as, as I understand all but one or two, were at that, at that nexus point in dying care, anxiety associated with end of life care. There's a way in which spirituality comes into those conversations and I think raises some of the questions that you are, whether it is that spirituality, and I'll use that word in a very generic way here, um, whether those experiences should be part of our healthcare thinking, or whether that questions whether or not these are in fact healthcare encounters or whether we need a different container. Uh, mm. Should it be ritualized? by communities as they see fit. Maybe that's an Native American church ceremony, which predates, you know, the work that's being done here in the 1950s, of course. Um, you know, those, I think this yeah. raises the question. Wow. Erica, yeah. whole key smokes. Like you, you said, <laughs> I don't want to go off on this rabbit trail. This is the only rabbit trail I want to explore. The, I want to spend five hours on this topic because no one is, people are not understanding that that this is not just a, a, a medical concept. We come from a, hundreds of thousands of years as, as evolved species doing ritual use of sacred plants. Every single human being on this planet has in their DNA ritualized notions of healing, spirituality, and connection into small groups and healing containers. And altered state work, whether that's trance work or whether that's uh, shamanic work in shamanic cultures around the world, all of them believe that our healing is best done in community. Mm -hmm. We'll stop. 
You do not heal alone. You heal in community. For all of humanity, that's how we heal. We are social creatures. I just interviewed Dr. Darsha Narais from the University of Notre Dame, and she just written a book. She's a neurobi, uh, sorry, uh, an evolutionary um, psychologist that looks at how we raise babies and children and how, how they thrive. Her work is really important for the psychedelic community, even though she's not necessarily writing about psychedelics. She's mm -hmm. actually writing, she wrote a book called Restoring the Kinship Worldview, how these indigenous ways of being are the best ways to raise children. And part of what her argument is, is that ceremonial use of sacred plants are essential to a healthy, vibrant community. Full stop. She's like, I'm sorry, if you don't have ritual and ceremony as part of your life, you will be you're, you will not thrive as a human being. And I'm mm -hmm. like, oh, he smokes. I'm listening to her going, you are challenging this separation of health and spirituality. He says, by doing that, you're destroying our planet, destroying each other. We are no longer connected with one another. Our families are falling apart. We no longer have spiritual communities that we are that are meaningful to us because we've mm -hmm. walked away from shame-based fear religion, these sky god notions of punishment. And, and so now we don't have anything. We're this, uh, you know, as, as Johan Hari says in his book, Lost Connections, are, are the rise of, of SSRIs directly parallels the, the, the kind of the, the, the secularization of our society and the anxieties and fears that we are grabbing onto are continuing to exacerbate because we're disconnected. We are disconnected from each other, from our planet. That's, and so what you're raising is a really important conversation, which is, can we really be whole and, and healthy without a sense of spirituality? And psychedelics are at the forefront of this conversation because they are a spiritual medicine. And you're like, well, you can't just say that and going, well, how about this? 85% says Johns Hopkins of people with high dose psilocybin experience a mystical experience on a questionnaire, regardless of their faith tradition, regardless yeah. of whether they're atheist. So people are having mystical and spiritual experiences. And when you say spiritual, I'm talking about a connected sense that mm -hmm. there's something more than me as an isolated individual on this planet. And so you're saying, turn my fingers off. yeah, our, our models here are of how we think about health need to include spirituality again, if we want flourishing on our planet. And I, and I think, wow, you're, you're saying that's a rabbit trail. I'm saying this is the, this is mm -hmm. the front page story. Well, and, and I don't mean I, I think it's a rabbit trail, like this is an afterthought or something like that. I just meant, you know, for the purposes of our conversation, it can open up a whole other way of thinking about this. And I might just say, add somewhat, you know, provocatively that, you know, we, you know, from your training in history that, you know, we we try to think about things at, at different scales, right? So what what era are we talking about or what is the kind of like time scale that we're dealing with here and we may be in the midst of a paradigm shift and that paradigm if we take the kunian logic of this is not just you know we think differently about how ssris work or we think you know it's not a small thing it's a big cultural shift and if we think about what's going on with climate change and even covid sort of anchoring us in place and rooting us now, maybe, you know, we don't like it, um, but this this way that we have become kind of untethered from our roots, our geographical roots, especially. So land-based healing, which I predict comes from the book that you were describing about kinship as well, this, this notion that you have to know your place. 
um, and I don't mean like be in your place. I mean, like know your community and know your kinship network and know the plants that sustain and have sustained that community over uh, millennia. I think those ideas are really being tested in this moment. And whether people are sitting being frustrated about having to order groceries online or, you know, masking orders or whatever else, like, I think that's just kind of the window dressing. But again, say 50 or 75 or 100 years from now, looking back at this moment, I think we might see that there are some more profound cultural shifts going on in terms of how we relate to the planet, how we relate to our communities, some of which have been forced upon us, um, you know, by this global pandemic. Um, but it might actually be a really useful awakening moment. And I think that psychedelics come into this in the immediate sense and in that kind of urgent sense that you describe as um, I think I was reading that Andre Picard was saying that one in two Canadians are diagnosed with a mental disorder. I didn't see that by 40, but yes, this is huge. There's mental distress that is climbing despite all of the energy and effort put to helping to, um, you know, intervene in mental disorders, we're not seeing that happening. It's going in the other direction. And things like COVID and climate change and wars and, you know, uh, social justice movements are pointing this out as well, that like there's more distress and more trauma than ever before. Um, and the scales of which the, you know, the impact of that is that fewer people are able to sustain, you know, we, we've more days of uh, disability and sick leave attributed to uh, mental illnesses now than any other disorder that was from the World Health Organization a few years ago. This is a crisis point. And I think that it is not a crisis point that can afford that we can afford to parse out and say it's a crisis point for, you know, psychiatrists. It's a crisis point on all levels. And I think, you know, we need to think about at the same time, Indigenous reconciliation, we need to think about climate crisis, we need to think about all of the isms that make trauma in our bodies. All of that comes together, and this is again, well, I'll come back to the word psychedelic, the intellectual fluidity that is required to think about problem solving in this space, it, it's not going to get parsed into one sort of university department. I don't even think it's going to be solved by a university, Johns Hopkins or otherwise. I mean, this is something that requires communities to think through justice systems in different ways. Yeah, and it's exciting. Uh, but maybe that's because I love these sort of dystopic ideas. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really like a fruitful area, generative area to see, you know, humans coming together and trying to think about how can we creatively mm -hmm. invest in a better path forward. And psychedelics may not be the answer. Like if only we had psychedelics, we'll all be better people. I'm not convinced of that. But I think that psychedelics are a tool that may help us to arrive at a more, um, open set of thinking mm. around how we change these things, whether it's methodology, whether it's reconciling indigenous relations, or whether it's thinking about spirituality in our healing systems more broadly. Wow. <clears throat> like, that, like it's, it's an insane what you just did there. And I, and I totally agree Would you began to link you know, all of these things into a, into a network, a hub, right? So that our, our spiritual crisis, our mental health uh, crisis in Canada, healthcare issues, anxiety, depression, uh, you know, global warming, reconciling with indigenous communities in Canada, um, spirituality, you know, all, all of those things are in the center of this conversation, right? On psychedelics and spirituality. Yeah. And, and so you can't avoid this conversation uh, because it's, it's actually saying, 
what if there was a way that began to address all of these things, right? What if we prioritized and gave preference to indigenous ways of being and indigenous uh, models of how we live in connection with land? You know, the kinship worldview is saying the collective is primary over the individual, right? The, the indigenous worldview begins to prioritize things like trance-based learning as normative, not as kind of uh, something to be criminalized. I mean, that's, you know, just remember, Canada, under the, the pressure from the Catholic Church, uh, criminalized trance-based learning in indigenous communities. We're talking about longhouse, uh, uh, demonstration, drumming. All of that is all trance-based learning. That's all spiritual work that happens inside of indigenous communities, whether that's rites of passage, whether that's the Sundance, whether that's coming-of-age ceremonies, whether that's healing. All of that work was considered against the law, and you're put in jail for that. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. happened. And Christianity was at the heart of that, of criminalizing that. So we have to not just, you know, there's there's repair to be made in, in how we've treated children in residential schools and 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 uh, all the horrors around that. But we are now like I'm sitting with my indigenous friends and in all honesty, I, I feel embarrassed because I'm saying you have wisdom for us right now in the psychedelic community because you have thousands of years of history of doing altered state work with people. Can you please teach us? And they're looking at me with arms crossed saying, um, you're asking me to teach you and you outlawed what we know. Exactly. Do you see the irony yeah. and the, the, that right now I'm asking, we need wisdom on how to work with people in, in trance like states. And because what happens is they open up and, they, and they're like, yeah, we know we've done this for thousands of years. And yet now you're coming to us and you want our wisdom. You out, you took our land, you outlawed our practices. And now you're saying, hey, sorry, just kidding. Can you help heal Canada? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And I think the fear of appropriation and, you know, taking that wisdom and then turning it against it, you know, there, there's too much of a track record of seeing that kind of model being applied in under the guise of colonialism. And so I think there is a real risk of perpetuating harms um, with indige Indigenous people by, you know, seeking out this wisdom in ways that don't also sort of amplify that conversation into this larger set of mm. consequences. Yeah. And and I don't have, I'm really good at not having any solutions for anything. Um, but, you know, <laughs> but I, I don't know what the answer is, you know, is there a particular model that would work to allow for, I mean, I think that's what uh, many of us are wrestling with in all of these areas of questioning, like, how do we actually get people to drive less? Or how do you actually get people to think about water? How do we think about Indigenous reconciliation? I, I think there are there are lots of questions being asked and, and there's not a model that fits any one of those, let alone one that integrates them back into a whole kind of cultural framework for thinking about respect mm. um, that challenges some of these long held, well, long held from my perspective, um, uh, settings where which have created these huge power imbalances. And it's not a matter of flipping a switch. We can't just say, okay, now we're ready to listen. I, I know. Mean, and, would anybody I mean, trust that? No. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I mean, wouldn't it be, I mean, I'm just making this up, but wouldn't it be a beautiful and whether they, whether they want to or not is another thing, but to partner with indigenous communities as kind of um, yeah, not, not just wisdom keepers, but as, as really guides in, in how this medical model should be rolled out. Like what if the, you know, the, <clears throat> the, uh, the department of, um, indigenous health right so we 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 have these at least in british columbia you have its own indigenous kind of health model 
what if they are taking the lead on how to do this kind of therapeutic work in communities and they become the leads in every every band in essence helps i mean whether they want to partner i i don't have you know, as if that as if they you know we can assume that but to begin to say you have models that we have not tried because we've only been in a kind of uh, an individualized medical model and we realize that's not working anymore. We need new models and there's frameworks, at least in these kinship worldviews and indigenous ways of being that offer so much promise for our planet. And I think that applies right now to psychedelics as well. And our, our the for me, the road ahead is going to be communal based, spiritually mm. based, and it's going to be group trips done in people tripping in groups in a community spiritual context, not with kind of a hierarchy of here's the, the expert and then you're down here. And so yeah. th that's what's going to shift in our culture. And that's going to be the place that we find healing in these spiritual communities. But I, I think for our conversation, I want to bring us back to where we first started, because uh, I think it, we can tie this back nicely into um We've seen models that have uh, tried a few things different. We talked about Weyburn and uh, some of the characters there. I want to introduce the conversation into this New Westminster uh, Hollywood Hospital and uh, see if we can pivot to that conversation. Um, and let me just do a little intro to this. So this is a new book that you just been redo, uh, re redone, uh, put out, sorry, in uh, July, I think it was. I picked it up recently, or maybe it was March. Anyways, the uh, it's called... The it was it March? April, but or March, April. March and April. Yeah. March and April. But, okay. Uh, launched. Yeah. So it's called the acid room, the psychedelic trials and tribulations of the Hollywood hospital. And, uh, from, uh, the a Amazon book back, it says this, and I, I like, it's really good from the street, uh, new Westminster's Hollywood hospital. Didn't look like much, just a rambling white mansion, mostly obscured behind the Holly trees from which it took its name. But between 1957 and 68, it was the site of more than 6,000 supervised acid trips as part of the burgeoning and controversial field of psychedelic psychiatry and then you begin to go in and introduce this character al al captain trips hubbard and uh al hubbard is quite a character um and uh, we begin to uh look at his story of how he was involved in the vancouver psychedelic scene here running this hospital for 10 years you wrote this with jesse donaldson uh and he's an amazing uh writer and really is passionate about uh local vancouver history and so your story uh with jesse is really quite fascinating Take me into uh, how you first came across the acid room uh, and uh, how did you hear about this story first, Erica, as a historian? And then what prompted you to say, we got to bring this story to light? Yeah, well, I came across Hollywood Hospital when I was doing my work for my doctoral work in the early 2000s, you know, some of which culminated in that in the book Psychedelic Psychiatry in 2008. But already, uh, you know, I was aware of Hollywood Hospital and I have a little bit of information about it there, but it's more from the correspondence that I found in, you know, as Hollywood Hospital folks were reaching out to the the researchers in Saskatchewan. So I knew it, it, that it existed and there were all sorts of larger than life tales and some of which you could find in newspapers and, you know, in the early 2000s, searching for newspapers was also a little different from searching for them today. Like there weren't that many digitized ones It required going to libraries and going through microfiche and you're looking for a needle in a haystack. So we found some stuff or I found some stuff at that point, um, but it was it was pretty ephemeral. It was really difficult to sort of lay my hands on it. I'd heard, however, that there were all sorts of patient records that existed, but they were being held 
captive, we might say, or they were being protected, depending on your point of view, um, by one of the therapists who was a self-appointed therapist, Frank Ogden. He took some, uh, he had some LSD experiences himself and declared himself a therapist. So he was, maybe he fits into your model. He's not uh, trained at Harvard or Johns Hopkins or anywhere. Anyway, Frank Ogden kept these and tried to sell them on eBay for a while, claiming that there were sort of, um, you know, tantalizing stories in there of celebrities who came in for clandestine treatments and this kind of thing. Anyway, that didn't work out. And poor Frank, you know, in his ailing years, um, ultimately agreed to donate them to the British Columbia archives. And uh, a friend of mine was working there who I'd worked on other projects with and he called me and it was sort of like, you know, something out of like the Washington Post story or something, you know, I get this call from an archivist. He's like, the files have landed. You got to get out here. You got to get to I love it. I love it. This is like for a historian, this is a jackpot. Primary <laughs> know, documents right? that not a lot of people have seen. That's like the holy grail. Totally. So, you know, I was like, you know, find childcare for my children, head out to Victoria as quickly as possible. And I photographed as many of these, all of them really. Um, and I started working on a project. So I had to get permission to see them because there's a lot of private information in there. It wasn't just a matter of like, you can walk in off the street and get access to these. I did have to um, petition the BC courts to get access to this and promise not to reveal private information. They There were too many files. It would take too much um, archival resources, too many archival resources to have someone go through and black out all the names. Anyway, so I gained access to these over the period of several months. I worked with a number of people to digitize them so that we we had all of them in place so that we can search things, we can start to compare. Um, and then, you know, so that was kind of building and then COVID hit. I was like, I need to go back to BC and go back into those archives and go back into these places and stitch the story together because I've got some raw data now, which is fascinating. It's not quite as large as the larger than life stories that spilled through the newspapers, but it's still, I think, is nonetheless incredibly rich and fascinating. And I got this call or this, I guess we'll have to update our language here. I got this Zoom uh, from this guy, Jesse Donaldson, I'd never heard of, who wanted to interview me about Hollywood Hospital because I had these you know, few paragraphs in this book. And he said, what else do you know? And I'm like, well, actually, <laughs> there's this whole treasure trove that I'm I'm working on and I need to get myself to Vancouver once the archives reopen and, and keep stitching the story together. And he goes, well, I'm in Vancouver and I'm doing this. And, you know, partway through our conversation, we kind of looked at each other across the Zoom screen and said, like, we should write a book together. <laughs> I love it. And I love it. It was a leap of faith. Mm, very cool. Yeah. It's amazing that, uh, you know, COVID again presented that problem uh, of, you know, travel and all that kind of stuff and being and then here you are, you you get to collaborate and bring in, uh, you know, a writer like Jesse, who I thought did, did such a good job at uh, really giving the color and texture around that it doesn't read at all. I mean, it, it reads like a, like a page turner almost particularly because the character, this uh, Hubbard character, uh, I mean, it, it starts, you know, I love it. It starts in the Jericho Beach, uh, Vancouver Yacht Club, uh, the, the open of the book and with this secret guy you know this guy with secret meetings and he's got you know he's got equipment and it just it just has us like what's going on here who are these characters and so this this al hubbard guy uh, tell me a little bit about him he is quite a character uh and and uh, really really a fascinating guy actually i mean again as a canadian um I think there's, was it him that took the suitcase of LSD uh, to Harvard? And uh, was, was that, was, was that him? That's one of the stories about him. Yeah. Uh, 
yeah, he's a he's a fascinating character, a very slippery historical subject because we we know already there's a, a Seattle-based historian, Brad Holden, who's written about Hubbard in his earlier years as a kind of double agent rum runner who flips a number of times to avoid getting into more trouble than he maybe or trouble that he should have um, by continuing to flip. And this is during prohibition. And he kind of, so Brad helped to sort of set the stage and that was wonderful working with him to sort of piece together our, uh, like, where does this guy come from? You know, there, and there's so many stories about Hubbard and they don't all line up and, you know, things I'll give one quick example. So Hubbard says a lot about himself and then other people write about him and say like, that wasn't true. And then other stuff you think, well, that can't be true, but it is like, you know, his side hip revolver that he carries with him or the briefcase of acid that he doesn't make an appointment. He just walks into an office and brings out these or the bringing a strobe light into sessions. And everyone's like, that's a bad idea, man. <laughs> and he's like, no, 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 try this out. He's, he's a very quirky character and verifying information about him was really tricky, but it also made for a really exciting historical project. I'll, I'll say this, as Jesse and I were madly writing this book, like we had a really tight deadline, um, we're getting it off to page proofs and everything. And we get a call from one of the people we've I, I'd interviewed in the past who used to run a rare bookstore uh, about psychedelics. Michael Horwitz calls me and he's like, guess what? We just found another letter from Hubbard. Where was it? It was in the walls of the house that he had lived in on Denman Island and someone was demolishing the house and found these records and called someone and, and you know it came to Michael's attention he immediately scanned copies and got them sent off to us this is a guy where you know I'm sure there will be more stories that come out of him as more walls are taken down or more information comes forward um, because he squirreled away stories and and materials and ephemera wherever he went and yeah so Hubbard is a fascinating character who's not really trained he's kind of a rogue guy and there two things quickly one he claims to be you know self-educated so like about a grade two education or something like that he's he's not like he's kind of rough around the edges and he's hanging out with like the likes of Aldous Huxley and you know very schooled uh British gentleman this Kentucky like maybe with ties to the CIA like really different worldviews you would say and the other thing about Hubbard is he's intensely Catholic. And his Catholicism comes through in, in the book, I think, or I hope, and in ways that are also a bit jarring to those who are trying to dismantle established ways of thinking. And Hubbard keeps trying to reinsert this sort of orthodoxy um, in the way that he thinks about these sessions. And I do think that it creates sometimes a creative tension um but it nonetheless is like this interesting mix of values that he brings to bear on on this place yeah and i think what you know for me what's so interesting about the book yes it's a, a really cool like what there was a psychedelic hospital you know in new westminster in the you know in the 60s like that's the kind of the what you know that kind of moment yeah. but i i think the what what it really hits me when you begin to get the perspective of what's going on is there is 6,000 trip reports that you have access to so that, you know, we're talking about this is psychedelic 
uh, trips with a therapist, usually, usually two or three they're using, like it is so similar. Like the protocols that I'm reading about in there are so similar to today. We're talking about eye shades. We're talking about the use of playlists and music and, and prepping them for the session and then putting them into a high dose session and then doing, you know, psychotherapy after. And then what I think it's so beautiful about your book is that you have these stories, you have these actual, I mean, you, you block out the names and change the names obviously for that, but they're the beautiful stories of these people in the sixties. And, you know, one that just hit me is, you know, one young man dealing with his sexuality, right. Mm -hmm. And you can think about the, the anxiety and fear you have in the sixties being gay and saying, you know, I'm trying to, uh, I, I want to get this gay out of me. I mean, that was the, that's the language, right? It was this conversion therapy and he goes to the Hollywood hospital and has this profound experience of connecting back into himself falls in love with who he is, realize there's nothing wrong with him. And that and then he kind of accepts who he is and finds that uh, that 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 peace in his life and moves on from that. I mean, it was a touching, beautiful chapter about the potential of, of this therapy model. It, it felt like I was reading something from 2021, not from 1968. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, that's a, a beautiful way of like sort of drawing this back even. I mean, that idea and just as a quick reminder, like, you know, homosexuality is not just considered a disease at this time, but it's also considered illegal. So if we think about the kind of risks that that poor guy was taking, even in divulging that information, you know, these are really risky things to even admit or to talk about. And so it, the story, I think, just takes on a, a larger than life kind of beauty. And, you know, I, Jesse and I had, you know, we had some pretty emotional moments working through this mm. material as well as we, we engaged with these stories and felt as we went through the, the um, patient files, that this was what we wanted. This is part of what we wanted to do, that we really wanted to demonstrate a kind of um, I'll say diversity and, you know, to be fair, we're not talking about a global kind of way of thinking about diversity here. Um, but of the characters who come through, you know, we wanted to showcase that this was not just a one size fits all treatment, that people were coming in. And it's that idea that we were talking about earlier, that Osmond felt really proud of as this kind of alignment, or making whole an individual sense of themselves, that is inclusive of things that have been marked off as diseased or disordered or wow yeah or yeah that's an interesting you know i was just listening to gabor mate the other day we were at a at a, a screening of a new film dose two that i'm that i was able to be part of and and gabor was talking about um it, the story is a documentary of of, of, a, of a mother who's dying of cancer and and has taken a, a psychedelic uh psilocybin you know, session and, and really changed her relationship to her cancer and, and then therefore changed her relationship with herself, her family, her husband, the whole bit. And it's a beautiful, touching story. And I want to all our viewers go, you know, find a city that this is premiering in dosed to. It's a powerful story. But Gabor Mate said this, he said, um, he says, our diseases in our culture right now are so much based in our relationship to ourselves. And so we need it. They're based in how we think about ourselves and our place in the world. Again, I'm not enough. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not happy enough. I'm not rich enough. I'm not whatever enough. There's, there's this anxiety that I, I have a, a, a dissonant relationship with myself. And he says psychedelics and this kind of, uh, a, a, this approach can begin to change your relationship with yourself. And, mm -hmm. and that's what happened with Lori Brooks. She psychedelics didn't 
take away her cancer. It changed her relationship with herself. And therefore her anxiety changed. And, and therefore, and when that happens, your body has an opportunity to actually go into a parasympathetic state and actually immune system can come back on. And so he says, it doesn't shock me at all that we're actually finding those that change their relationship with themselves and heal through a kind of spiritual psychedelic experience begin to, uh, their diseases begin to um, kind of slip away, normalize. And I'm like, what? And he's like, no, 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 of course. Of course, this is, we are holistic human beings, right? We change our relationship with ourselves or change our relationship with our disease. So you're, you, this is what's happening in Hollywood Hospital. You're, you're seeing these people come in and have a different model of treatment. And, you know, you have one there, you know, we talk about alcoholism. You have one that there's this one, one woman who has experienced so much sexual trauma and mm -hmm. it's just horrific, all these memories that she has. And she comes in and heals. I mean, it's, it's all I can, it's a one, it's, you know, it's, it's, what else can you say, but mm -hmm. heal because it's an app, a radical change of her relationship to herself and falling in love with who she is. And I'm like, wow, that's beautiful. And so I thank you for bringing that out. The, the types of stories that you pulled out in your book, uh, the acid room are, are, are so, um, accessible. And they're so emotionally engaging. I'm like, oh, I'm cheerleading these people who are seeing this opportunity to change their relationship with themselves and become these beautiful human beings, right? And with the pain, with the trauma, with yeah. the disease, right? It, that's the thing is that it's, you know, I'm the Susan, um, what's her name? Is it Susan Kane who wrote the book? She first wrote a book called quiet, the, the revolution of introverts. Um, and then she just wrote this new book called bittersweet. And in it, she argues uh, that it's our ability as human beings to be able to sit in the pain and to find the beauty of life. That's really our, this kind of the, the secret sauce to life. Most of us yeah. don't have models to do that. Psychedelics can help us hold both of those. Right. And begin if, to find. Think, yeah. If we think about, you know, what was challenging, you know, kind of coming back and and maybe offering a bit of a summary is that, you know, when you ask like 1951, these guys are thinking about that. That's crazy. Right. Um, I, within a year, you know, in the same hospital that some of the LSD trials were going on in, in France, chlorpromazine is introduced and the model of chlorpromazine, which is the first antipsychotic medication, is to turn off those symptoms to subdue them to minimalize them not live with them um not face them not like keep yourself whole it's to lop off these particular unwanted features and granted unwanted features can cause distress and they you know there's a desire not to hallucinate when you don't want to not to have a psychotic break um i, I don't mean to suggest that you know that's not the case but that whole model ushered in a way of thinking about ameliorating symptoms by muting them dampening them or sort of turning down the volume i suppose on the extreme and psychedelics operate in such a different way um, that not only do the sort of economy of psychedelic healthcare challenge the pharmacological way of thinking but even the very you know notion of that experience which comes back to how could you could you imagine the women or the, sorry the people from hollywood hospital going through randomized controlled trials I mean, we hope that in those demonstrations, those illustrations of people's experiences, we also get a feeling for, you know, how important that relationships, those relationships and that setting are um, just to amplify that, you know, 
you can't stick someone in a room and blindfold them and leave them there for eight hours and measure the effects of a pharmacological interaction because it's only part of the mixture. Mm, wow, that's a perfect that's a perfect summary uh, of of that kind of challenge. This is not about giving a substance, putting someone in a in a hospital room and saying I'll come back in eight hours, and then you're kind of can go right. I mean, uh, this this is uh, that that is not how this substance works, and 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 how this uh, you know this entheogen this this plant works. Uh, these plants, I mean, LSD being an ergot based uh, mushroom, uh, psilocybin obviously, and even things like MDMA. These others are all they're all plant based kind of psychedelic uh, tryptamine. So you're, you're, you're talking about a different model and we kind of go back to, you know, where we, where we started full circle, which is, you know, here we have this kind of uniquely made in Canada model that is trying to be holistic. It's trying to uh, treat the whole person and it's trying to do it in a way that is um, uh, maybe outside of the normal medical model. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and I, I think there's an opportunity here if, for Canadians to think using, cause we have this unique, beautiful, you know, medical model that in Canada, uh, of, uh, of a national healthcare system, could we figure out a model in Canada that, that treats the person holistically and yet allows for uh, the funding for these kinds of treatments, right? In a, maybe it's in a community center, maybe it's in a spiritual church, maybe it's in a First Nations Reserve, or I don't know how it's all going to happen, but imagine if, if Canada could take the lead and say, yes, we need to explore this, uh, th th this uh, model and we need to uh, give physicians, therapists, uh, spiritual care workers, workers, end of life hospice workers, all of these people need access to, to this type of, uh, this type of uh, molecule, this type of substance. I mean, it, it's not lost on us and me at this moment, even right now, Erica, where I got the privilege of being able to fly out with Dr. Bruce Tobin from Theracil and film the very first legal section 56 exemption in Saskatoon, right? A couple of years oh, ago. Oh, you were with Thomas. Yeah, with Thomas Hartle. <laughs> and I sat there with him as he took, you know, uh, about five and a half, six grams of psilocybin yeah. mushrooms that he grew himself and was given legal right to do. And we sat there as he legally consumed this with the presence of a therapist and a hospice worker. Uh, mm -hmm. And we sat there and he was, you know, he, he had been told that yeah, I've got months to live kind of thing. And here he had this radical transformation. I, I got mm -hmm. to see it and sit there during and film his therapy session after and before. And what I, I can never, ever undo that. What I saw, right. Not is his radical change within six hours of his relationship to himself and the cancer that he was dealing with. I don't know anything else that can do that. Uh, but it was done in a loving, beautiful place and his home with a mm -hmm. therapist, with his, uh, a friend. And, and it was just this beautiful place. Now, Thomas has gone on to be an advocate, uh, and, uh, is, is doing really well and his cancer load continues to drop. And yeah. we don't understand that. How can yeah. you explain that person who's been said you're going to have months to live is still alive and thriving two and a half years later after a psychedelic treatment that has nothing to do with cancer, but has everything to do with how you think about yourself. His story is in many ways like Lori's. Um, I went to dosed to with Thomas uh, to see. So we, what? we hold on, whoa, 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 Erica, you can't just drop that and just and leave that till right now in our conversation. Tell me about that. What was his? What was his response like? What was your response? I mean, 
you know, both of us, maybe more so than some of the other people in the audience, you know, we already knew maybe more about this story than anybody else there. Um, you know, I've worked with Theracil on a few things. I'm familiar with this story. And I've been working with Thomas on a number of things. We started a Saskatoon or Saskatchewan, I guess, psychedelic society. And uh, so we invited all of those members. We had our first in-person meeting right after this to sort of integrate what we learned about dose two and thinking about that. And, you know, what does it do for our community? And um, so, yeah, I mean, I really think that, you know, it's sort of, I've joked with Jesse about, you know, the relationship between the Saskatchewan and the BC folks, but I feel like we are also, whether we were aware of it or not, there is this relationship that we keep flying over Alberta or driving through it um, and <laughs> connecting on some of these psychedelic stories and continuing to promote meaning making in this space. And so, I, I, yeah, I think, I mean, Lori's story is absolutely beautiful. Um, she's an incredible uh, person to to follow this story because she's she's so easy to relate to, and um, you know, and I think Thomas in in many ways Thomas is very similar. He's somebody who I I felt like a number of times watching you know other than the beautiful drone film scenes of BC, ours would look a little different. But um, you know, here in the flatlands of Saskatoon, you have a guy who who grew up never trying any cannabis products, never having, I, like he, I think he said he's had alcohol a couple of times, but like he doesn't drink alcohol. He's, he's very kind of straight, if you will. And, you know, not into mind altering anything. And to hear his story, and I've come to know him now over the last few years, um, it sort of parallels Lori's. Um, and of course there are differences, but both of them have had fairly radical changes in radical changes in the perceptions of themselves and their relationships to their families as part of that. You know, it's, you can't separate those things out. And in both cases, it's like mystifying watching Thomas shared with me his last scan results and we were talking on the phone looking over scan results and there's a scene in dose two of Lori like anxiously waiting for her scan results after a really large uh, cannabis uh, session <laughs> and uh and Thomas, you know, we're sitting there watching this. He's like, I know, I know what's going to happen. He's like, same thing happened to me. They can't find, they can't find his tumor, his tumors. He had 42 tumors, right? Yeah, Don't he had 42 number, tumors. Like, yeah. how come, how come the whole, this isn't front page news on the New York Times? Like, this is insane, you know? Yeah. And you're like, what? This has, no one really thought that that was going to be the kind of outcome was that as these patients are doing these experiences that there seems to be this, I don't know, a, a shift in how their body is dealing with cancer. And there are others who receive Section 56 exemptions who have not had the same yep. outcomes. Like, you know, this, this challenge between taking anecdotal stories and then scaling it up, you know, of course, not everyone has found that their cancer has essentially disappeared. Um, but Thomas's last scan report, they're like, we can't, we can't find it, you know, yeah. and that was similar to, to Lori's experience, if I recall correctly, there are cases like this. And I think one of the things that comes through in both your film and, and in my sort of um, working with people in this area is there's a, a sort of welling up of frustration that like, hang on, if these things, mushrooms in combination in this case with cannabis, and that's true for both um, Lori and Thomas, if these things, cannabis being recently decriminalized and mushrooms only sort of a little bit decriminalized partially, if you look the right way in Vancouver at one store, you know, so not, I'd say not decriminalized, um, but 
the stories are getting out there. The information is getting out there and it's, you know, a testament to, to uh, Tyler and the others working on Dost. Um, and I'm sorry that I'm forgetting their names. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's a uh, Tyler and Nick. Yeah. Thank you, Nick, Tyler yeah. and Nick. I was like, I can see their faces. Yeah. <laughs> it's a testament to the storytellers that are working outside of the frame of, you know, stick handling things through RCTs. And, and that's important too. Like we kind of need this to happen on all levels, but you know, I'll, I'll make a grand statement here, but the humanities have a lot to offer in this domain. And part of that is telling these stories and creating platforms for sharing these stories, anecdotal or otherwise, to help sort of bring def other information to bear in this space. And so the frustration I think is hearing stories about, hearing Lori's story, knowing Thomas's story, I think people start to scratch their heads and say like, hang on. So this naturally growing thing, if we're talking about mushrooms, we're not, I'm not, I, someone's going to tell me I can't take that, even though I believe that it could, you know, it, I, I have a death sentence with my prognosis, with my cancer prognosis. Um, I think that sense of that jarring tension between, you know, whether Health Canada or any other jurisdiction is actually protecting me and, you know, feeding me safe information and helping to assess my risk for me, which, you know, I think we like, you know, it seems out of sync. And this is a moment where I think we're going to see that um, lack of syncopation falling apart. And whether that comes through legal challenges like Theracil is, is doing right now, or whether we see people just breaking the law and participating in growing their own mushrooms, because it's not hard to find information about that. Um, people are going to start to challenge this in different ways, whether with their feet, so to speak, or or by taking it to the higher courts. Yeah, I I think it was really a beautiful summary there on kind of an opportunity for Canadians, but both to respond to this, you know, both the you know the film and these conversations is Canadians have an opportunity to let their voice be known and and uh, whether that's reaching out to their MP to say, hey, listen, I watched this film, I read this article, and I want you to know as a um as a as a Canadian you know taxpayer. Uh, I, I want our government to respond to this. I want our government to take, you know, uh, psilocybin off the schedule one list that needs to happen. That needs to happen this year. And it needs to be given into the hands, at least a start uh, mm -hmm. of, of, of physicians and therapists. And uh, there can be a vetting body about, okay, here's how it's got done. Here's the protocols. You know, I know that health Canada is looking at what is the best protocol to use for this. You know, they don't want to just say, okay, everyone can do whatever they want, which is, I think that's what it should be, but whatever. I, I you know, it, it's this is a substance that grows in the ground. Like we cannot yeah. criminalize plants. You cannot criminalize plants, and you cannot criminalize your consciousness. Every human being has the right to their own consciousness, and if they want to be able to alter that, they should be able to alter that if they want. And it's and it's it's a travesty that Canada is stopping that. I I will just be a bit of a naysayer, though. You know, I think we play for the same team here, but. Um, I do think that there's there's a space for some caution and I think there's space for some uh, cynicism perhaps it's one thing for you as a you know adult male who's a fully formed human being to decide what you want to do for yourself but we know that choices don't actually fall out evenly or equally um, and so I think there are there is room here for we still need to do some thinking on this and I think you know trialing, I don't mean RCTs, but, you know, uh, experimenting with different models for thinking about how we change the script 
on, on drug information, on harm reduction information, how we reach out to communities, whether they are police officers, either those seeking um, help for their own trauma or those who are policing the street. Um, I think we need to do a kind of full-scale integrated approach here to thinking about how to roll out a different way of thinking. I, I worry that a kind of libertarian approach might be a little too quick, um, might actually perpetuate harms and might introduce traumas that um, we could avoid in taking, I, I don't mean like stick this with a Royal Commission and we'll have like a two year uh, soul searching moment. Um, but I, you know, I, I'm optimistic also that there has been movement from Health Canada, albeit slower than I think many of us in the psychedelic community would like to see. But there has been some movement moving away from the special access or from the health section 56 to special access. So giving physicians capacity to apply for access and giving sort of rolling down that responsibility to individual physicians. That might actually be an important step. Again, it feels maybe slow right now, but I think that some of these things are happening and that maybe seeking allies instead of drawing lines of um, in the sand, like Health Canada is against us or the Supreme Court is against us or whatever it might be. There are allies across um, the establishment. And I um, I don't know. I, I offer that out as a pregnant. I like that. No, that's actually really helpful. And I think that's, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm obviously a bit more on the libertarian front, mm -hmm. but I think that that is... Your your caution is important because we we look at what happened, you know, to the Hollywood Hospital, right? And we looked at that yeah. and say they had ten years of amazing results, people being healed, and it, you know, you think, well, this will never stop, and then it comes to a stop like that. Boom! Yeah. It's shut down. Everything's sealed. It's done. It's war on drugs. We don't want people, you know, questioning the war in Vietnam. We, 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 you know, and we have to understand that the history of the war on drugs is racially motivated, and yeah. and we know that. Uh, and so that 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 movement took over the world within yeah. years. And and you're like, could that happen again? You bet it could. The the rise of yeah. authoritarian mindsets. Uh, there we're right on those you know, edges right now. Right. So your, your caution is good, uh, Eric. And I really appreciate your, um, you know, the caution and, and to say you have advocates, you have allies that really want to see healing done in Canada. Uh, Health Canada wants to do this right. Um, yes, it feels slow. Uh, there's lots of suffering people, but I really believe in, the, in, you know, in, in the opportunity for doctors and, and therapists to advocate for this so that they can begin to get the data that Health Canada really needs to be able to say, here's the model we think it's can best land in to be able to be most effective and safe for individuals. I want that too. And and scaling this project is going to require some considerable investment, both in terms of resources like money, um, but also thinking, you know, how do you suddenly overnight have a bunch of trained therapists? And what are the criteria by which we train those therapists? Do they come out of medical school or nursing school, or are they as some of them were in the past, trained by, you know, world experience. And by world experience, I mean, you know, they've they've taken the substances that they are giving, yeah. uh, which was one of the protocols that was in place in the past. I shared the protocols, I should say, with people like Rick Doblin and, mm. and Roland Griffiths. Uh, so some of the early protocols, <laughs> I'm like, this is what they were listening to. This is what they thought of that music. This is why they did this. The lighting was like that. Um, so it, it's kind of interesting to be a historian in this moment in this sort of interlocutor position between the things that aren't 
often on PubMed and are sort of outside the frame of the digital world, um, and yet are very much in in the conversations today. So I, I think I think we need to be mindful of, you know, the 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 risk of abuse in this in this setting. And we, you know, those stories have already been coming up in the contemporary setting, you know, things that were already approved and ready to go and considered authentic or legal and abuse cases come up. And I, I think, you know, maybe we can say there's, you know, a bad apple or a few bad apples, but I think when we scale things up, there will be more of those cases. Yeah. And I would rather like to see us think through some of those challenges so that we can, you know, not um, take the train car mm -hmm. off the tracks, um, but instead be better prepared to think with a kind of harm reduction literacy when we imagine, you know, all sorts of different ways that this might, um, that a psychedelic moment might get mm -hmm. derailed. Wow. Well, thank you so much, Erica. This has been an amazing conversation and I clearly we have to continue this because uh, <laughs> I, I love that uh, you and Thomas uh, connected and are building a psychedelic society there in Saskatchewan. Um, I, 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 we have a couple of psychedelic societies out here in BC and uh, I, I helped start one here in, in Abbotsford. Um, so I'd love to find connections and, and do some, uh, maybe we could do some, share some resource and these kinds of things. So that's, that's really exciting. Um, we, we, this has been a really fun conversation. Uh, Erica, is there anything else that you'd go, you know, this is really important. I want to make sure I, I get this message out. Uh, is there anything that kind of, that you felt like we didn't cover that you wanted to be able to make sure you said? Um, probably not. There's like so many things we covered, but yeah. I guess there's just one thing that I was thinking of and this notion of scale, whether it's with therapists or not, I think has started to, um, how do I want to put this? Where we get those supplies, um, brings back some of those other conversations about indigenous uses. You know, does this mean that everyone needs to go to the peyote gardens and we'll over harvest the peyote gardens and then we'll, you know, kill our supply of peyote for the world um, so that everybody can have a chance at this, you know, amazing medicine. And I think, you know, that's a, a really poignant example of, you know, whether we need to invest in synthetics and some people don't think you should be using synthetics. Those questions are things that are still, I think they're a little bit behind the curtain. Um, you know, it's a bit putting the cart behind before the horse in some respects, like how can we have this public conversation when they're still illegal? And yet we need to have these conversations because if the flip gets switched and overnight there are head shops now, maybe in Vancouver, I don't know how Abbotsford was, but like in Saskatchewan, you know, we seem to be late to get the memo and, you know, it wasn't overnight. It was a little while longer, but suddenly there are head shops everywhere. And we saw this on display with the cannabis change. And I wonder, you know, on oh, some ways we're ready to accept that psychedelics have a place in our in our future but how that gets implemented i think has the risk of thinking about over harvesting plants of uh, bringing about psychedelic tourism that we already know exists um and again perpetuating harms on indigenous people and that's why i think again not the rabbit hole but i think that indigenous piece has to be front and center i i i couldn't agree more i i that's you know for me this this restoring the kinship worldview model that <clears throat> that this darshan eyes had talked about has been really sitting with me as like a kind of a way forward right is like what if we use that as a map you know to say how, how we do this how do we create these communities how, can we use psychedelic societies as a way to in essence build these community connections inside of cities all across the world right where these 
beautiful spiritual communities are forming and you in essence have a community to land into once you go through an experience you have this uh, you know uh, uh, a, uh yeah spiritual based community that you can connect with and meet up and uh, do that so i i um I'm committed to that kind of work and want to build those kinds of communities. And it sounds like you are too. And that's really, really beautiful, Erica. Um, thanks a lot for coming on today. We've been talking with Dr. Erica Dick, uh, an author uh, and a professor uh, in Saskatchewan. And her most recent book is called The Acid Room, The Psychedelic Trials and Tribulations of Hollywood Hospital. Go get that book if, if you want to understand kind of a little bit of the cool history of psychedelics in Canada and particularly psychedelics in British Columbia. It is a really fun little read. It's a nice little pocketbook. I like the framework too. It's short. It doesn't, it's not, a, you don't need a lot of time to engage in it, but it's a page turner. And it also has this beautiful emotional connection as you start hearing some of these stories of the people who've gone through it. So I love it, how it's woven as a story, but I also love these moments of these personal connections that people had uh, as they were part of the hospital. So Erica, thank you so much today for being on Unveiled. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome.